Welcome to Top of Mind, the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the biggest trends impacting the market today. Enjoy the show. All right, Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the smartest leaders, thinkers, doers in the real estate industry. For a couple of years now, we've been sharing the latest market data every week in our Altos Research weekly market videos. With the new, the Top of Mind podcast, we're looking to add some context to the discussion about what's happening in the market from, from leaders and thinkers in the industry. So, you know, each week Altos tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the changes in pricing and all that data. And we make it available to you before it, you see it in the traditional channels. So visit altosresearch.com for more on the data that we do. And now we're gonna use the podcast time to do conversation. And so speaking of leaders in the industry, especially people who understand the data, I am thrilled to introduce my guest today, Odetta Kushi. Odetta is the Deputy Chief Economist for First American Financial Corporation. First American is a, a leading provider of title insurance, settlement services, risk solutions for real estate transactions. In this role, Odetta offers analysis, commentary, forecasts, on trends in the real estate and mortgage markets. We're gonna talk mortgages today for sure. Much of her work revolves around demographic trends, millennials, that's another big topic for today, and home ownership. So she monitors and analyzes the quarterly surveys on, and economic data related to the housing industry. Her research is regularly cited by leading businesses and trade publications like Business Insider, Housing Wire, Inman News. Uh, I look at, uh, Deta's work, especially on Twitter, in the framing that she does with the the trends and the data, and I find it particularly cogent. So I am thrilled to have you join us today. I am thrilled to be here. I'm excited for our discussion. Great. So as a place to start, why don't you tell us more about First American and your role there? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm the deputy chief economist. So I do a lot of work forecasting, doing research, commentary around real estate trends. First American is first and foremost, a title insurance company. So, you know, providing uh, title insurance and, and um, settlement services. And Mark Fleming, who's the chief economist and myself really work on kind of the, the real estate research side of things. So looking at housing supply, demand, specifically affordability, kind of offering our take and analysis on, on all things housing. And there, there's never a dull moment in doing that, especially not in the last couple of years. Everybody needs to know what's going on. Yes. And I've known Mark for years, but, but I've really been enjoying your, the, the content and the writing that you've been doing. So I, I, you can, you can tell him that I wanted to have you on the podcast first. <laughs> we'll get, we'll get to Mark later. Uh, terrific. So, so how did, how did you get to be a housing economist? I've always been obsessed with with real estate. My background's, you know, obviously economics, but really kind of focused on more econometrics, um, statistics. And I did some of my early thesis on uh, more macro, which is ironic because I've gone so micro now. I'm all things micro, but I, I kind of did my thesis on privatization and developed nations. And so I've always really been interested in this thinly traded heterogeneous good that is housing. Um, you know, it, I think housing, the housing market 
you can study labor markets, you can study, you know, finance, all of these things are so important to the decision to buy a home. And, and like I said, never a dull moment in, in our world. So lots of reasons, but, but those are just some. And did you, the work you said you were doing macro wise with like develop, did you say developing nations? Yes. So I was born and raised in Albania. And so I was kind of inspired by, by my upbringing there to study, you know, what drives economic growth in some of these countries and, you know, really looking at kind of privatization of these kind of former closed economies. Interesting. And is, is, was housing a significant shift in places like that in in the, in the like nineties? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you went from, you know, a state-owned economy to kind of opening up to the world economy. Title, the issues of title and on how to determine who owns property was was a big was a big thing. Really difficult to get access to data, particularly kind of micro-level data for for some of the countries I was studying. So I had to kind of look at the macro level, look at, you know, what's happening to privatization. Are you having, you know, rapid privatization in some of these countries among some other economic variables? So, but but that's a former life. And now I get all of the, you know, all access to to micro-level data, household-level data, which is fantastic. That's yeah, that's great. Let's start with this. You know, we called the the podcast top of mind. So yeah. what's top of mind for you in this world? Well, goodness, I think I'm going to maybe choose two things. So uh, the first is perhaps a little predictable coming from a housing economist in 2022, but it's inventory. And Mike, I know you track this inventory data so closely, and I wait for you to post your weekly updates so I can see what's going on as well. But one of the things we've been trying to understand is really the gap between uh, supply and demand, new household formation and supply of homes. So, you know, I've identified a couple of different ways to do that. The first is we wanted to measure the housing deficit or surplus um, by comparing new household formation rented and owned, uh, which represents the new demand for shelter to total new housing units completed and added to the housing stock. So that's what we did. We compared new household formation to total new housing units. And in order to measure that deficit, you kind of have to make an assumption of when was the market normal or balanced. So we, we kind of decided that 2000 would, would be that year that we had the right number of supplied units relative to demand. And then we determined the shortage of, of supply relative to demand. And the finding was that we've been, we overbuilt relative to demand in the housing boom, not necessarily surprising to anyone while household formation was slowing, but we've been underbuilding since 2008. And that, you know, that's significant driver of the house price appreciation that that we've been experiencing over the last couple of years. And while COVID did slow, likely slowed household formation in 2020, the pre-COVID trend was rising household formation. And so, you know, if we make a couple of assumptions to kind of forecast what this would look like moving forward, even if we slowed household formation because of all of that underbuilding, we'll still likely have a housing shortage for, for many years to, to come. And we've also analyzed this by looking at vacancy rates over time and kind of um, benchmarking to what we consider a normal vacancy rate. And, and what we found was that the, the a shortage, the deficit as of the third quarter of 2021 was about 1.56 million units. And we were building at about 1.56 million units. So you know, even if we had no new household formation, no second home buying, you know, no destruction of home, then we could get back to that historical vacancy rate within a year. But we know that's not realistic. So all of this to say we'll be undersupplied for 
for a little bit of time. That's okay. There's a lot there. So lot there. Under supply yeah. <laughs> and an underbuilding since 2008. So the first question on top of my mind is, is so we have, we are finally up to like maybe historical average new home construction rate. And is it, are we above average yet? Like, is it, are we surging the, the start home starts? Are they, are they starting to get back to? Yeah. So housing starts in 2021 were, were great. So, so, you know, a lot of progress there, particularly during a year of so many challenges for builders, right? A lot of those things that we've heard about, it was actually an impressive year for home building. Um, unfortunately, not enough not enough to, to really kind of bridge the gap between supply and demand, not enough for this, the, the deficit that we're experiencing. And so more, more needs to be done. And so you and see based on, on forecast trends for household formation, that we're, we're in deficit mode for foreseeable future. Yeah, I would, you know, my crystal ball gets hazy, but but I would say the next the next couple of, of years. <laughs> okay, so there are a couple of other there are a couple of analyst folks who have a different view on this. Have you have you looked at, for example, Ivy Zellman's latest stuff? And help help me help me process what she's saying there. And and so and and for the listeners, so I, Zellman has been saying, and and she's as well informed as anyone in the housing space that we aren't underbuilding or we we are maybe haven't underbuilt have you so have you taken a look at her at that argument and, and see how to process it yeah and and this this initial analysis that i mentioned was was partially to try to wrap our, our minds around what's going on there you know is it is it really true that household formation is slowing to such a pace that that we are in danger of being overbuilt and so that's why we kind of decided to look at it from from all sorts of different angles all of which were telling us no the housing market is is severely underbuilt even if as i mentioned even if household formation slows in, in the next couple of years, because of that growing deficit, will still be underbuilt. Uh, okay, and, so and, you know, so <laughs> even as it's even as household formation may be slowing, we we have an increasing deficit rather than a decreasing deficit. Right. That's exactly. that's really interesting, and and I mean we see it in the data. And one of the things I was you know the crystal ball gets hazy as you say, <laughs> and so are there phenomenon? Are there changes that you know the the long tail risks, the the black swan things that, that could impact us and derail this current trend. Have you seen anything like that? Do you have anything on your well, radar? Nah, not in, in terms of inventory on a national scale, I would say I would say I, I'm not I'm not afraid of, of of being overbuilt. I'm not afraid of a foreclosure crisis by any means. We're sitting on so much equity, right? So and and we can talk about that later and I'm sure we will. But you know, of course. Real estate is local, so certainly there could be pockets of of the U.S. that are you know that are more in balance or maybe are getting to to be overbuilt. There aren't any markets that we've necessarily isolated as as being overbuilt, but certainly that could be the case because you know location, location, location. So, yeah. So speaking of location, I saw that you recently did some work on investor opportunity markets. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously investor, the investor share of sales has, has increased over the pandemic. And so we wanted to kind of understand that a little bit. And what, what one of the things that, that we noticed, what well, we developed kind of a, a 
cap rate, if you will, which is typically a, a term that that is heard in, in the commercial real estate market, but we kind of wanted to, to do that for the residential market. And, and we identified some of the kind of most attractive markets uh, for investors. But one of the things that I found interesting in, in while we were doing that, we were looking at our investor share of sales. Those markets with the highest investor share of sales were also some of the markets that are experiencing some of the fastest house price growth. Also some of the fastest or highest net in-migration areas as well. Phoenix stands out as I'm sure you've seen reported in the S&P case Schiller. So a lot of interest from investors in, in the markets experiencing the fastest house fastest price growth. appreciation. You, did you do yeah. any work? Have you done any work on cause and effect there? That's the question, right? <laughs> you know, it, are they entering the market because because there's so much house price growth, or is house price growth kind of a, a consequence of so much um, investor activity? And unfortunately, I don't have a clear answer for that. I think it's it's a little bit of both, but certainly increased demand against a relatively fixed supply would yield you know, incredibly fast house price growth. And so, you know, you have investors entering a market with, with a relatively limited supply. And certainly I could see that, that extra demand boosting house price growth. Interesting. Some of the investors that I've been um, talking with lately, they, they sh are shifting their focus from a place like Phoenix to some of the, the tertiary markets in the South that have lower median price so places like Memphis or or Birmingham or the, like Jacksonville, what do you see in those areas? Yeah, so those you know some of those markets actually they they made up the top markets for areas that could offer the highest return in that cap rate analysis that I mentioned. So I believe the top were Pittsburgh, Birmingham, Memphis, Detroit, and Virginia Beach in our analysis of 2021 data. So I can confirm that. <laughs> yeah, so the Pittsburgh and Detroit have have a good cap rate because the because prices have been depressed for so long, but the others have. Good migration, in migration, have not yet had big price appreciation like a lot of the other Sunbelt cities. Oh my goodness, yes. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. Cool. So, so when you're sitting at your desk at, at First American, one of the advantages is that First American processes a lot of real estate transactions. Yes. So you have presumably some visibility that uh, the rest of us mortals do not. What what do you what do you see in in, in the data? What do, what do you have at First American that um, really stands out that that you know that you know you can have visibility where where the rest of us do not? Yeah, well, so I'm an applied economist, and I'm very lucky, as you mentioned, I work for an organization that has a deep treasure trove of public records and tax assessor data. One really interesting asset that we have is a repository of images of recorded documents of deeds and deeds of trust. So. You know, a deed conveys ownership, deed of trust secures a loan. And we use, you know, modern AI and natural language processing to extract information from these images and create structured data from unstructured data. So we've got about seven and a half billion images. And you can imagine that's a ton, a ton of data that, that we can leverage kind of on top of all of our public records and data assets as well. And, you know, foreclosure data that we have, assignments, releases, pre-foreclosures, parcel boundaries, HOA data, lots that we can use. And I definitely take advantage of that. We've created some derivative work from all of that data. So our tenure data, which measures 
the average length of time that that homeowners you know stay in their homes, which gives us a little bit of insight into um, the the supply issue again, right? A lot of a lot of homeowners are staying in place; they're not moving. The average tenure length has reached historic highs, so we can create that tenure data. We've created a house price index, a repeat pair house price index, not unlike the S and P case Schiller. So you know, track foreclosure activity, all of that, and so I'm, I'm very lucky to have access to all of that data covering basically all you know all properties in the United States. Yeah, so, um, when you so ten years. Is an interesting phenomenon. People staying in their homes longer. I think that's especially boomers, but is there more to that trend that we should know about? There's there's a couple of factors going in. So older generations aging in place compared to kind of their their generational predecessors. A lot of reasons for that, you know, they can, their their home suits their needs, technological advancements that have allowed, you know, people to live a healthy and full life in their home. So so certainly aging in place is is one for those that experience the the housing boom and subsequent decline obviously kind of waiting out to to recoup some of the equity in their home that's one factor as well and then i think those who have locked into historically low mortgage they don't really have an incentive to sell particularly now that that mortgage rates are going up i mean i think we the, the trough was about 2.6 in in mortgage rates last year and so if you locked into that you know you're you're kind of locked into place. There's there's not a lot of incentive for you to sell and buy a home at a higher rate. So I think there's there's a lot of different factors that are contributing to that rising tenure length. Yeah, for sure. The 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 it, it is the do you have you. I'm not sure if you can measure this, but can you measure things like the the construction rate, for example, for retirement? communities and are we underbuilding there so that you know another factor is that if i if i have a home and i'm you know a 75 year old and i'm thinking about a retirement home but i don't have a place to move to is that is that a factor going on well i we haven't measured that but i think you you touched on a really important point you know the other reason that that tenure length is increasing is because you're if you're an existing homeowner and you want to move well there's not a lot for you to buy, particularly if you're trying to move up, uh, you're trying to get something bigger and better. There's just not a lot of inventory. And so, right, that's the thing that's unique about the housing market is the, the seller is also the buyer. And so I think that the inventory shortage is also kind of preventing, preventing existing homeowners from selling, which is driving up that tenure length as well. Yeah. Okay. So, and, th- and that phenomenon has not showed any signs of slowing yet, right? So that the it, the tenure keeps growing, that there's time in the home. Yeah, we just we just looked at the data this month, another historic high. <laughs> the historic high. What's that? Do you know what the off the top of your head what the how long? It's about average, just over 10 years was 10 the years. average tenure length nationally. Yep. And a decade ago there was like seven years. Exactly. Yeah, that's a big change. Big change. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, that's fascinating. Do you, do you, um, have data on second home ownership? We, yes. So we can identify uh, second home share of sales, which unsurprisingly also increased during the pandemic, pretty unsurprising there, but yes, so we can track second home shares as yeah. well. And, uh, second home shares sales. Yes. Spiked during the pandemic, but also is, I uh, think one of the things where we see people, one of the reasons inventory has been declining over time is we accumulate more second homes or investment properties individually. 
Absolutely. That, that reduces, you know, me as a potential first time home buyer, that the number of homes that are available to me. <laughs> yeah. I, I said this a lot. It's like all of our policy in the U S is designed to help the homeowner, to keep the homeowner in the home, to help the taxes of the homeowner. And it works. It works really well to the detriment of those who don't yet own. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, looking out into the 2022 housing market, the thing we keep saying is, is it'll likely be another really good year for those who own their home. But for, for the rest of us that, that are yet, yet are not yet homeowners, it's an incredibly challenging market. And I mean, even the Altos data is showing we're, we're starting the year with record low inventory. Prices continue to go up. Mortgage rates are going up and, you know, potential first-time home buyers don't have the money from the sale of an existing home to use the down payment. So a lot of hurdles for that potential first-time home buyer. So on that topic, let's talk uh, about millennials and the, 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 that demographic. What should we know about what's happening there? Yeah, lots. You know, when I first started at this job about six years ago now, everyone considered millennials the forever renter generation, the avocado toast generation. They were never going to buy homes. They were, you know, they had all the student loan debt that was going to prevent them from buying their first home. And, you know, a big part of that is because if you look at the homeownership rate data, millennials at the same age, their homeownership rate is significantly lower than their generational predecessors. So we can kind of map out the homeownership rates for millennials, Gen X, baby boomers, the same age of 30, millennial homeownership rates are about eight percentage points lower than their generational predecessors. So, you know, it's, it's not hard to see why people thought that, but I think if you, if you take it one step further, you realize that it's not that millennials weren't interested in homeownership, that they were never going to be homeowners. It's just that they're doing it much later in life compared to their generational predecessors. Yeah. So, it, no. the millennial story shifted from a bearish housing market story to a really bullish one in the last handful of years. Yeah, and I'm glad because I don't have to convince people anymore because the data is finally starting to show that millennials are driving the housing market. You know, they're between the ages of 25 and 40. I think people forget that sometimes. Yeah. And so you're having those, the bulk of millennials turn 30 in 2020. So you're really starting to see millennials enter um, enter the housing market. And, uh, and again, they've been delaying all these lifestyle choices that delay the decision to become a homeowner. So they're getting married later in life. They're having kids later in life. They're staying in school later. And so all of these factors kind of move along that, that the age of, of when a millennial might buy their first home. And so in your, in the last six years that you've been doing this role, you, you started, you were saying, like you were kind of bullish on millennials when everybody else was bearish. Is that, did you have to go through yeah. that period? I did. I was convincing people, you know, we we're surveying and, you know, obviously there was the interest survey after survey indicated that millennials, you know, really viewed homeownership as, as, you know, the core of the American dream. And they were very informed about housing as a driver of wealth creation. And it just was that they weren't, they weren't there yet. You know, they were still in graduate school. This is the most educated generation in history. And they're staying in school later, which is yielding higher incomes, which of course, you know, helps with, with the home buying. But of course, the question I always got was student loan debt, you know, uh -huh. isn't that going to prevent them from buying the home? So of course we, we did that research. I mean, we found that student loan debt is much more likely to delay than prevent homeownership. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of reasons for that, but, but 
what we ended up finding in the survey of consumer finances data was that the average student loan debt has increased significantly over time, but the interest rate on student loan debt has come down significantly and the loan repayment terms have nearly doubled, right? So as, as you and I know, going from a 15-year mortgage to a 30-year mortgage allows you to buy, you know, borrow a whole lot more money for the same monthly payment. And the same thing has happened to student loan. So that the, the payment to income ratios on student loan debt have actually remained fairly flat. That's, so that's a much less bearish story on student <laughs> loan debt than you hear normally. Like, yeah, absolutely. So again, more likely to delay than to prevent homeownership. That's great. It's, it's been my observation over the 15 years doing Altos research. The best times, the most fun times are when we can be contrarian and bullish. So when the market is bearish and we can say, guys, the, the data is actually pretty good. Like those are fun times to be. Yeah. You don't want to be in the opposite situation. <laughs> you don't want to be in the opposite situation. You know, and there are times when, you know, like right now the market's on fire. Everybody knows the market's on fire. That's, that's great. But when, when the market assumes that everything is tanking, but we can see data that shows it's not. So like at the beginning of the pandemic lockdown, we had, you know, four weeks of down market and then it started coming up and so there were still a lot of headlines about, you know, well, for a whole year and a half, we had people worrying about, you know, a foreclosure flood and things like that. And we, we could be bullish when everybody else was bearish. That's a fun time. It is. And it's tough, right? It's a tough position to be in. I think we came out in uh, March or April of 2020 with a, with a blog post talking about, you know, what, what we thought was going to happen to the housing market. And one of the signs that we were looking at is unemployment as a proxy for financial distress. And what we realized was, well, this is a services recession. So it's likely to disproportionately hurt younger, lower wage renters, not so much the prospective home buyers or current homeowners. And so that allowed us to kind of build that into our forecast. And we're looking at these numbers. We're like, I think housing is going to be just fine, especially when you factor that, you know, the Fed's response and what will likely happen to, to yields and, and mortgage rates are like mm, low mortgage rates ongoing demographic demand and labor market decline, that's not likely to hurt, you know, those that, that are likely to be homeowners. We're like, I think we're going to be okay. So we kind of put this blog out there and we're like, oh, we're hope we're right. It's so hard. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's so hard. Uh, but the data, you've got to follow the data, you know, and when the data changes, our story changes. It's uh, just like the Fed, we're data dependent, right? Yeah. For sure. That's, that's super cool. So, so, so millennials are de delaying or have delayed now they're, now they are buying and, and the demand is super high. Yes. Uh, two, two other factors then that, that I'm curious about is when do the boomers sell? And is that something we should worry about or think about, or, you know, how do we factor that in? That when is, do they finally sell? Yeah. I mean, that is the question that that's been top of mind because it's, You've got to forecast a lot of different things and make a lot of strong assumptions because they're not behaving like, like previous generations. So we can't make the assumption of when baby boomers may age out of homeownership, if you will. But certainly, you know, if, if baby boomers age out of homeownership, if they sell, that frees up a ton of inventory. So trying to figure out that timing of when the millennials will need those homes and when the baby boomers will leave those homes and then, you know, are those the kind of homes that millennials want to move into? You know, how much work will need to go into that home to make it livable for that first time homebuyer family as well? So lots of questions there. I don't have a year for you. I wish I did. <laughs> yeah. But. I mean, the boomers are now 75, right? They're starting to turn 75. Like, 
there's some real change to be happening here. Absolutely. And, and that's something that we'll be turning our research focus to because again, implications on, on supply, which obviously has uh, strong implications for prices. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that. So that I love the, the, the question of, you know, are the boomers homes that they're selling, are that, is that where the millennials want to be? So help me process through that. So in some ways, the boomers old own the stuff that's closer in, like closer mm -hmm. into downtown, like the better locations. And the new construction is in, is, you know, far suburban or exurban. I think about this over all often. I, I live in San Francisco, in the city. I haven't seen new construction. You know, it's hours away to get new construction. I have no idea where that is. And it's also not a place that I'd be buying. Right. There's no new construction in any part of the world that I would buy it. So what what should we think about? What 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 do millennials think about or what, where is that? Where, where are we looking? Where are the trends there? Yeah. So migration trends and migrations, not just to other states, but within within the same state and even within your same kind of CBSA. We, we saw millennials migrating out to the suburbs and exurbs even prior to the pandemic. So this was a trend that preceded the pandemic, was accelerated by the pandemic and the ability to work from home. So I foresee that trend continuing because it's not just, you know, it's not just do you want the condo or the single family, it's also the schools. I mean, a lot of millennials are moving out to the suburbs because they're getting married, they're having that first child, and they want the school district that is typically associated with, you know, an area outside of that urban core. But with that said, I do not subscribe to the death of the city ideal. I think there, the city offers quite a few amenities that, you know, the Gen Zers right behind the millennials will still be interested in, but certainly we have seen this migration to exurb suburbs over the course of the pandemic. And that has implications, not just for the residential market, but also for commercial real estate. You know, obviously I'm not going to the office anymore. I used to go to my downtown office and get my Panera bread nearby the office. I'm not doing that anymore. My demand has now shifted to uh, the local bagel shop near my, near my condo. And so you have this, this demand that's kind of relocating and following where the residential demand is going, which is which is in the suburbs. Kind of a more macro view and some of the, the migration patterns we've been noticing, I think you mentioned it earlier, uh, moving out of places like New York, LA, Miami, more to Sunbelt markets. Uh, we know all the Texas metros are, are experiencing a ton of, of in-migration from young people. And, and certainly I think that that's, that's here to stay. And places like like Phoenix as well, but over again over the course of the pandemic, really movement to the suburbs was accelerated. That's interesting. So on the on the work topic, are you never going back to the office or just not yet? I'm hybrid. I'm going to be hybrid. I think I, I go in occasionally. I, I I like the office atmosphere, and I do think that it does foster collaboration when we're all in. So I I think we'll see a hybrid. Um, scenario moving forward, but that also has implications for what your office looks like. And so a ton of, of implications for the commercial real estate market, retail, office, everything, but, but I'll be hybrid. hybrid. How about you? Uh, well, I, so I'm in the office. I like being in the office too. Yeah. Um, but we, but frankly, none of my team really wants to be in the office. <laughs> it's like for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, younger generations are saying that they're missing out on, on key networking opportunities and, and being able to build connections by not being in the office. So I do think that there will be some pushback against hundred percent work from home. Yeah. I kind of, I have a hypothesis that, that exciting companies will have an exciting office environment and boring companies won't. 
And so it, like an exciting office environment will be a recruiting advantage. You know, if, if you're the company is so boring that nobody ever wants to see each other, <laughs> like that's not a good sign. So uh, yeah. I, I have a yeah. hypothesis that, that will get, you know, bounced back. And, and I was hoping it was going to be September and then it got delayed and I was looking at January and now it's like a little shaky and downtown San Francisco is still pretty, it's still pretty quiet. Maybe yeah, a little sign. DC too, DC too. But you know, virtual happy hours just aren't quite as fun. But I, I think it, it just goes to show us that the pandemic is still kind of in and kind of waiting for the pandemic to wane. And, and, and then we'll see when the smoke clears what that hybrid situation really looks like. Yeah. So when you do your data, do you do surveys? Do you like you do you go out and survey data to get things so like some of the you're talking about some of the trend data and things like is that survey stuff that you actually most of our, our uh, analysis of survey data is publicly available census data. We used to have have a survey, but but um, no longer do our own surveys and mostly are analyzing census census data census migration trends. Got it. the the process of of surveying is pretty fascinating to me. Like we we you know like. That's, that's a whole context of information that, that I believe in the wisdom of the crowd. I think there's been analysis showing that sometimes, you know, wisdom of the crowd can, can be more accurate than, than an expert. So yeah, I certainly feel that way. Okay. So, so here's a question. I, I don't know how much time you've spent with international markets and, and looking at some of the international trends, but one of the things I observe is that high demand, uh, low supply is not just a U.S. phenomenon. It's, it is in a lot of the Western markets, which maybe implies it's not a construction thing. Like, isn't that like, that's, you know, new home construction is a, is a, that, that's a, those are local phenomenon, unless maybe everyone's under, under building. Have you looked at it international at all and, and drawn any conclusions there? A little bit. So I think, you know, the short answer is Yes, there's the, the severe kind of the, the limited supply, high demand seems to be occurring in, in a lot of other nations, certainly US, Canada, UK, New Zealand have experienced strong house price growth, which is an indication of, of a supply and demand imbalance. I think part of it is the low interest rate environment that, that a lot of these countries find themselves in that's contributing to, to the boom. Over the course of the pandemic, the workers need to work from home. I don't think that's specific to the US. You know, that, that phenomenon is occurring in places like Canada and the UK as well. And then, of course, you mentioned construction. You know, over the course of the pandemic, at least, the supply chain disruptions that, that the construction industry in the US has faced, so have the construction industry in all of these other countries as well, all of the shortages of, of material and labor that, you know, home building is a very manual job, right? You need construction workers out there. And so I think that that's contributed at least over the course of, of the pandemic. Yeah. Okay. So, so there are some global macro trends and impacting our Western neighbors as well. That's it. Yeah. And, and so I, I wonder some of those, in fact, like Canada is even more extreme than the U.S. Uh, Australia, yes. I think too. New Zealand, so absolutely. Those are, they're actually a little scary. Like what, like how does that end? Well, anytime someone tells me, you know, house prices can't possibly go any further. I'm like, uh, well, don't look at, don't look at global house prices then. It's uh it's fascinating. So and we, we already talked about like the, the opposite side of that statement, which is the risk that, that we have some kind of collapse, which feels pretty low in that, like there's, everybody's got cheap mortgages locked in forever. Are there any other risks that we're missing? You know, I, I would say not 
maybe not frame it as a risk, but I think that the double digit house price growth uh, that we're experiencing is not sustainable, but that is, I want to be very clear that it does not imply that I believe we're in a bubble by any means. I think um, the fundamentals are supporting the house price growth that we're experiencing and, and by fundamentals, you know, record low mortgage rates in an environment of high demand relative to, to low supply. And so I did a lot of talks over the last two years on how this time, this time it's different, you know, right? Because everyone's, we're all, we all bear scars from the great recession. And I think people are quick to, to think that this is the same situation, but there are so many differences. And, and I actually think we should be saying last time was different, you know, last time mortgage finance innovations, if you will, teaser rates, you know, fixed to adjustable rate mortgage structures, all facilitated bigger loans at the same monthly payment to keep up with the growing home values, which of course is one reason why house prices continue to go up. Um, not the case, you know, tighter this time around, we have tight underwriting standards, credit, median credit uh, scores have, have hit historic highs. And so much different situation. And, and certainly the fundamentals are driving the house price growth this time around. That's fascinating. Last time was different. I love that, that characterization. That makes a <laughs> right? lot of sense. So on that topic and financial innovation and things like that, let's shift to the future. So there are some technical innovation things happening, technology things happening. There are, there are financial innovation things happening now. The iBuyers the, 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 and, the, and related things like make a cash offer on your house, even if you don't have the cash. Like, have you looked at any of those trends to see which ones you I think are powerful or have legs? Well, what we've mostly focused on, I think, are at the onset of the pandemic, one of the things that stood out to me is how pleasantly surprised I was at how the housing industry kind of rolled with the punches in the time of uncertainty and challenges, leveraging new technologies, identifying ways to close real estate transactions with little to no contact, investing in technologies, you know, whether it be on-demand video tours, 3D tours, online notarization. So I think, you know, what, what I'm monitoring more closely is, is the innovations that are happening in being able to quickly buy a home, quickly and efficiently buy a home in kind of an automated way, removing some of the paper. I think a lot of, I'm a millennial and a lot of my friends, when they buy the first home, they're like, what is all this paper? I mean, we don't know what a printer, like what, <laughs> you know, they're very surprised at the process. And so I, you know, I think the ability to, to stamp a document electronically, all of these innovations that are happening, we're mostly paying attention to, to that and how that could really make the home buying process more efficient. And so those technology innovations uh, create efficiencies. Do they create any risk or is it, is it all good? Well, I think the risk is, is that we already have a market that's moving so quickly, right? So um, days on market is hitting, we hit a lot of, of records in this pandemic, but that was one of the, the records is days on market hit a historic low. And so the ability to buy a home very quickly, I think definitely cuts down on that days on market if we're able to, to really facilitate a faster home buying. Yeah. yeah you know, I, I, I did a refinance during, you know, right at the, right at the low a year and a half ago, a year, there you go. 14 months ago. And you know, it's a, it was a stack of papers this thick at my kitchen table with masks on. And, and it's sure seems like we could do this better. Yeah. Finally. I mean, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So there are other, some other big trends, um, in the, the market. And this actually, I'm not sure if this is something you've looked at, but, but we look at, Big, big financial trend, cryptocurrency. Crypto is both an asset 
for speculation, a financial asset, but also has a transactional potential in the some of the areas that First American works, like in the title insurance. Uh, have you spent any time thinking about impact of the crypto changes coming and, and is First American doing things on that front? Well, the way that I that I've been thinking of crypto, I mean, I think there's been some work done is is not necessarily in, you know, buying a home via crypto, but but more so the fact that a lot of people have sold, made some money from from their transactions and been able to use that money as a down payment on a home. And I think that's been particularly important for a lot of potential first-time home buyers that have really benefited from from that market, um, whether it's speculative or not, uh, a, a lot of people have been able to benefit from that and a lot of the kind of asset appreciation that we've seen over the last couple of years. And so um, monitoring, I don't, I know I've seen kind of published data on the rising share of of buyers that are purchasing homes with the proceeds from their, their sale of, of, of their cryptos, but that's that's the extent to which I'm aware, but certainly a trend worth worth monitoring. Yeah, for sure. The the for and especially during the pandemic, the big spike in some of the the value of Bitcoin and some of the others, and and put created some wealth very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I think the way you phrased it was really useful for people. It's people are not using crypto to buy a home. They're they're using the proceeds from assets that gained in value that they sold to to buy homes. There's a difference there, right? Because some headlines can be a little misleading, and I've I've fallen into that trap myself. Where I've, I'm like, you know, it says something: twenty percent of of people are buying their home with crypto. I'm like, really? I don't. I'm not aware. And then you kind of dig deeper. You're like, no, no, they're actually buying with proceeds. So, absolutely yeah, cool. Are there other things in the future as we look towards uh, the next decade that that we should be paying attention to? So I, you know. At least for, for the next year, obviously, all eyes are on inflation, the implications of inflation. But but looking beyond that, I think always scale back to the, the housing market fundamentals. Rates are important. Rates have always been important. But you know, people bought homes when rates were 18% in 1981. So the decision to buy a home is not strictly financial, but also demographic. And, and so I think there's there's not enough attention paid to the demographic trends you mentioned earlier. What will happen when the baby boomers age out? You know, when will Gen Z begin to, to think about buying their first home? That has strong implications for, for demand. And so I think always go back to the housing market fundamentals, demographics, obviously rates as well, because buying a home is not just a financial, but also a lifestyle decision. That's interesting. So you mentioned inflation. Let's talk about inflation really quick and then we'll, yeah. we'll start wrapping up. Uh, I had a friend, I have a friend in, in LA who has, he's an entrepreneur, but has been actually traditionally very conservative with his debt. And recently he told me in the last year, he bought a multi-million dollar home, which he leveraged up as high as he could because he thinks, you know, and, and had a, 3% mortgage rate, which because he thinks we're in an inflationary environment for um, the foreseeable future. And he called it hyperinflation. I think he was talking about like 6%, but, but he yeah. still, you know, he still feels like, so uh, that scares the hell out of me. Like I could never do that. Even if it, like I get the math, like I still couldn't do it. Um, yeah. he, he's, he was <laughs> able to take averse. that risk. Yeah, what should we yeah. think about inflation? Yeah. So obviously when, when we first start to, to see the inflation measures, the Fed was going out saying transitory, transitory, they're no longer using that language. You know, inflation is, you know, I think 
sticking around longer than, than the Fed anticipated, it's a lot of that was caused by supply chain disruptions. And it's difficult to foresee when those may resolve uh, because particularly supply chains are so interconnected and the pandemic still remains a threat in, in the coming year. Labor shortages may ease in some industries as workers are enticed by higher wages. We've seen the higher wages, but things like transportation log jams and material shortages, they, they may take longer to clear up. And then of course, housing will be a significant driver of overall inflation and will likely linger even longer than some of those you know, transitory factors. And so it, it is difficult to kind of foresee when inflation will peak, but I like to look to the FOMC, you know, economic projections, which, you know, we're indicating that inflation will kind of come back down by, by 2023. And so, you know, kind of monitoring what, what the Fed is doing and all the data that they're taking in and, and how they're seeing inflation playing out in the next couple of years. So in a macro sense, you see, you, you, you kind of uh, accept the, the analysis that says that we'll have another year, but but we'll have decelerating perhaps inflation and then maybe starting to decline in 2023. I think I think that that's a, a you know a, a reasonable estimate. Of re course, always data dependent, but but certainly I think that we could start to see some of that that pressure easing. Yeah, and so one of the questions, like, and, and this is a fascinating one. I talk to people like in Twitter and social media stuff all the time. Housing's impact on the inflation number, and the inflation's number impact on housing. So. Home prices went up a lot, but that's not exactly how inflation is calculated. Right. And then the other thing is that as rates fell and everybody refinanced for homeowners, for me, and like specifically, like my, even in an inflationary housing environment, my payments are way lower. Like my money's gone down. Right. How do we think about that? Like, how, like so is housing's contribution to inflation and, and, and to our experience as Americans. Yeah. So, you know, for you as an existing homeowner, and, and this kind of goes back to investor activity and, and how you foresee, you know, investor activity, because you can buy a home at a, you know, very low interest rates. I know rates just went up to three, six, but that's still very low from a historical standpoint. And while rents have been increasing double digits. And so the, those numbers have not fully shown up in the inflation data yet. They're starting to, the rent data starting to, to kind of show up in that inflation number, but housing makes up the biggest portion of, of the inflation number. And so it's going to play a significant role um, in the next year or so. And, and again, not likely to, to be as, as transitory as some of, some of the other factors, but, you know, real estate is often seen as a hedge on on inflation. And I think as an existing owner, you're, you're seeing that or you're experiencing that right now, right? Compared to me, who's, you know, rent just went up significantly in the last month. So yeah, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I, I love the quote. Um, the best inflation hedge is a fixed rate mortgage and a Costco card. Like, I love that. I love <laughs> that's, that. That's how we do it. And and we all had and American homeowners have really cheap and they're all fixed rate mortgages now. Mostly fixed rate mortgages, super exactly. And you know, as if you're thinking like an investor, if you can lock in a fixed rate loan, offset it with rising rates or rising rents and enjoy, you know, the the appreciation, you're in a pretty good spot. Pretty good spot. <laughs> so it'll be really fast. I'm gonna be fascinated to see how my my LA friends trade works out his his lever up the multi-million yeah, dollar because i'm invested now too yeah <laughs> storyline <laughs> yeah. yeah okay what a terrific conversation is there is there any last thing that that has been on your mind that you wish people in this market would know or 
that some some visibility that we should pay attention to this year? Yeah, all eyes I think this year are are on affordability and and if price, house prices are likely to moderate. And and I think the dynamic we're, we're likely to see is that house prices will still remain positive because of this, as I mentioned, you know, severe supply demand imbalance that's unlikely to dissipate in the next year. But as rates rise in in you know in conjunction with this this rapid house price appreciation environment, you'll likely see some buyers kind of pull back from the market. Sellers adjust their price expectations. You know, bidding wars become you know less frequent, and you're likely to see some moderation in in house price growth, which which would be some which would be welcome welcome news. But the mortgage rates are expected to go up for several reasons, and we're we're seeing that today, right? Um, we've seen yeah. mortgage rates increase the last three weeks. So, yeah, um, I said I'm unable to predict rates. I'm unable to predict where mortgage rates will go, but we think they're going to go up. <laughs> we think they're going to, we think they're going to go, you know, inflation expectations are high, economies improving, you know, Fed tightening, all these factors should play into. But of course, if investors get spooked for whatever reason, whether it's pandemic, whether it's geopolitical conflicts, all of those factors could drive, you know, yields to decline and mortgage rates. So it's, it's really hard to forecast mortgage rates, but consensus is up. Yeah. Affordability is a fascinating topic. We could probably spend an entire hour on affordability. Okay. And but let's let's wrap it here. Where can people find you? And how they, how should they follow your work? Yeah, absolutely. So our, our blog, Mark Fleming and myself, we we put all our content on firstam.com slash economics. I'm also on Twitter at Odetta Kushi, So you can follow me there. Also, you know, you can look me up on LinkedIn. Um, but I'm pretty active, more active on Twitter than than LinkedIn. Terrific. Odetta, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It was great talking with you. Okay. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. See you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.